Strange Brew Podcast Season 1, Episode 86. It is stretch run time for the Milwaukee Brewers. The final two months of the year, the trade deadline's in the rearview mirror. They made one more move on Tuesday. Disappointing, and that's putting it mildly, series against Washington. We'll break that down a little bit. We'll talk about the offensive outburst last night, 14 runs, as they continue with the series against the Pirates tonight at AmFam Field on BOGO Beer Night. We'll be discussing that as well as... An ability now to buy beer at Badger Games at Camp Randall and at the Kohl Center. That was announced yesterday. Little preseason football. And I want to talk about the meaning of a pineapple, which I learned about last weekend. Let's go. On the ground, a chance here. Durham to Hardy to first. It's time! Yes! The Brewers yes! win! Yes! Here comes Melvin to the 25, to the 20. Gordon, 15, 10, 5. Smash up the middle, face hit the center. Here comes Gomez around third. A throw, and the Brewers win. Here's the snap. He looks, he throws, it's dagger. And there is your Super Bowl dagger. Booker the drive gets inside, leads in, knocked away, and stolen by Holiday. Phoenix has to foul. What a tackle! Ball throws it down. Swinging fly ball. Okay, so I learned a hard lesson. Not a hard lesson last weekend, but I learned a lesson. Something I did not know. And I figured I'll pass it along to you. I was at my wife's family's house on Saturday. They have a pool party every year. Been doing it for years and years and years. This past year, or this year, it was on Saturday. Go there, you have brats, you have burgers, you yuck it up for a while, have a couple of brews, hop in the pool, dunk on some kids in the pool. (laughs) One place where I have superior athleticism. And have a good time. At this pool party, I was wearing a piece of footwear that I have transitioned to now in my life. I am now a Crocs guy. I've been debating doing this for a long, long time. Last year, my wife and I did a vacation out to Acadia National Park on the East Coast in Maine. And as a part of that, we did a kayaking excursion on the Atlantic Ocean. Side note, if you want to feel real small, and I mean real small, Get in a kayak and go out on the Atlantic Ocean or any ocean, I am sure. You feel infinitesimally, is that even a word? Small. You feel so tiny. You're in this little boat and underneath you, thousands of feet of blackness and water and sea light that you don't even know what it is. Could it be a shark? Is that a seal over there? Is a whale going to come up and bump me off of this thing? You feel so tiny around all those big ships. It's crazy. Anyway. When we went out on the excursion, we own kayaks. We've kayaked a bunch in our life. It's something we do recreationally at least three or four times a summer or fall or whatever. I did not have the proper footwear that day, according to the guy that was going out with us. And he was right. I had flip-flops, and that was kind of it. Normally, I'll wear some kind of water shoes, but I just didn't have them on that trip. So he had Crocs. He had a bunch of versions of shoes that he could loan to people for these excursions. And I thought, I'm going to wear these. I've heard a lot of good things about Crocs. I've heard a lot of people that wear them. They swear by them. It's almost like a cult, like a religion. 
I'm going to test him out. And I'll tell you what, it was a game changer. They were comfortable. They breathed. You can get them wet. You can get them dirty. They're easy to clean. You can clean the whole thing with a Clorox wipe. It is so nice and versatile and fashionable and stylish as well. Now, I'll be honest. After we left Maine last year, I kind of forgot about them. I kind of forgot about that whole experience. I was going to make a mental note that day, and I just didn't, and we had a couple of drinks, and then I just didn't think about it. Well, I had some Amazon cash for my birthday in June, and I was trying to find some vinyl to buy or whatever on Amazon, and then it popped into my head. Oh, you should see how much Crocs are on Amazon, and they're cheap. They're like 25 30 bucks. I got myself a pair of navy blue Crocs. I didn't go with one of the outrageous colors. I know they have a million different colors that you can wear and you can mix and match and the whole deal. I just got your regular navy blue. I am a German man after all. Just regular old navy blue Crocs. I've been wearing them for about a month, and they are as good as I remember them being that one day in Maine at Acadia National Park last year. I'm a Crocs guy now. I used to be a flip-flop guy this time of year, a sandals guy in summer. But as I'm getting older, and my wife's a PT, she'll tell you, flip-flops are not good. They're not good for your feet. They're not good for your gait. They're not good for your muscle on your shin or on your calf. It just They're just not good for you. And if you wear them like I was three or four months out of the year, it's not good. These give you some grip. I've learned now you can go two-wheel or four-wheel mode. I'm almost always in four-wheel mode because that gives you some grip on the back of your heel, and it kind of lends itself to a normal walking pattern. That's one of the reasons I really like them, in addition to all the holes, and they breathe kind of like sandals do. I took a picture of them and put them on my Facebook page and just simply said, I have an official personal announcement. I'm a Crocs guy now. I wanted to see who all the other Crocs people were out there and relate to them. What I didn't realize is I had my swimming trunks on in this picture that I put on my page and on the B93 page, too. And in these swim trunks, I didn't know what this meant or if it meant anything. I just bought a new pair of swim trunks a year ago, and they have pineapples on them. I like pineapple. I thought it was a nice look, a good summer look. I hadn't bought new swim shorts in probably 20 years, probably since college. I like the way they look. And you know what? I also got myself a pineapple breezy Tommy Bahama shirt, too, a little button-up shirt. Those seem to be back. That style seems to be back the last couple of years. When I bought those, I bought that shirt, too. I was getting pineappled out. I put this picture on Facebook, and immediately comments start coming in asking if the pineapples are upside down. And I responded with a laughing reaction because I could tell there was a joke in there or there was some reference in there that I wasn't getting. One came in, and I just thought, eh, whatever. I'm not going to acknowledge it. I just laughed and moved on with my day. More and more comments start filtering in about these pineapples. Is that an upside-down pineapple, John? John, what, what's with the pineapples? I, now I know what you and Lindsay do on the weekends, John. That's one of the references in the comment section. I thought, okay, I've got to get on Urban Dictionary now and find out exactly what pineapples mean. Apparently... Pineapple, or a pineapple, is the universal sign that you are a swinger. (laughs) I did not know that. Specifically, an upside-down pineapple, I guess, but pineapples in general have that connotation to them where you're throwing out some kind of signal to people out there. Is that why people have been winking at me a lot? (laughs) I've been getting a lot of winks around town. That's apparently the bat signal you throw up if you are a swinger or a swinging couple. I had no idea, and I would like to question all the people in the comment sections that just knew that and started commenting on it seconds later. What does that say about them? Well, now I'm kind of bummed out because I like these swim shorts, and I like the breezy summer button-up pineapple shirt. I don't think I can wear them anywhere. I think the whole thing, the whole system's broken now. 
just so you out there, the listeners know, for those that listen to this podcast, if you're wearing a summer pineapple shirt or pineapple swim chunks or whatever, and you didn't know that, just know that you may be absentmindedly throwing out there a signal. Now, maybe that's a signal you do want to throw out there. Then everything's working together. Then you're working. everything's working in the direction you want it to work. But I just wanted to throw a disclaimer out there in case anybody else is doing this, just absentmindedly wearing pineapples, and pineapples have a different meaning to them in that world. Apparently, flamingos mean the same thing. If you have a flamingo on your front lawn, that also means that you are into some weird kinky stuff. I don't know. I got to do a, more, a little more research on that one. It's all these things happening in the world, and I'm blissfully ignorant of all of them. But that's why. I just thought I was putting an innocent post up about Crocs, and the pineapple swim trunks were the attention grabber, apparently. But I just, for people that didn't know that, just a little piece of information, the more you know. All right, let's talk about the Brew Crew trade deadline on Tuesday. They get one more player. He is the most beautiful brewer player I have ever seen. This guy, Andrew Chafin, the relief pitcher they got. Now, we'll talk about the bats. I wish they would have gotten another bat. We talked about Carlos Santana, decent bat. They get Mark Canna out of New York. I don't know if we talked about that on Monday or not. Did they have him by Monday, or was that a Tuesday deal as well? That might have been a Tuesday deal as well. Canna is very similar to Carlos Santana. Canna is a guy who's going to play a lot of right field. The total batting average for anyone that has played right field for the Brewers so far this year is 197. So Mark Canna's 245 average and 720 or 730 OPS while it's league average, a lot like Carlos Santana, league average or maybe a little above league average for first base, same deal with Canna in right field. The Brewers have been so abysmal, so god-awful in those spots and in DH where he could probably play a little bit too that the league average represents a pretty significant upgrade. They add Mark Canna. They get a second bat. It's not the impact bat we wanted. It's not Eloy Jimenez. It's not one of the big names out there that you could throw in the middle of the order, a guy who's going to hit 290, 300, who for a full year could hit you 30-plus home runs. They didn't get that. Whether that comes back to bite them, I guess we'll find out. They've been winning this year with pitching, just enough offense, and elite bullpen work, and good defense, which all failed them on Wednesday, which we'll discuss in a second. That, though, seems to be the recipe. That's what the front office is going to go with this year. They obviously value their high prospects and those controllable years more than they value trying to go all in for this year. We've been over this a million times from my own personal perspective. I'm never a guy who conceptualizes the future well. I don't know what pineapples mean. I don't know what salary cap means. I just look for, as a fan, and most of us are that way. Most fans are that way. If you have a team that's in it, and you have a chance to maybe go all in for a certain year, you want it. If someone came up to me and said, John, the Brewers, I can guarantee you the Brewers will win a World Series this year or go to the World Series this year, and the next 10 years are going to be crap, I take that every time. If it's the immediate instant gratification of something like that, I take the immediate every time. When I used to play Madden football back in the day on PlayStation, the first thing I would do in franchise mode is trade a million players, sign a billion players, and then I'd win a title or two, and I'd never look at that team again. I like to think of a different world, a different timeline, where all of those franchises have just been losing and losing and losing, and they had to move cities, all because of bad financial maneuvering by yours truly. They obviously love their prospects and think that they will be more helpful as controllable assets for seven years, whenever it is that they get called up and that timeline starts. They like that more than they like giving those guys up to try to find an impact bat or two. They felt like they could get an average bat or two in a bullpen arm and kind of see what happens. They add Mark Canna, who doesn't have a hit yet. <laughs> he is 0 for 8 or 0 for 9. 
He has scored a couple of runs. He's 0 for 9. Carlos Santana got a hit last night, Thursday night. He is 3 for 23. These guys are fitting right in. But they do add one more league average bat, and they add Andrew Chafin, who is really a good left-handed relief pitcher. His numbers don't indicate that. He has an ERA over 4, which is pretty average, but that's because of one bad appearance. A bullpen pitcher could have a great ERA all year. You go out there and you give up eight runs in two-thirds of an inning, and it blows your ERA up to the point where you have to spend the rest of the year whittling it back down. That's what kind of happened to him. He's a lefty. He can throw low to mid-90s. Got a good breaking ball. But the thing with Andrew Chafin is he looks like he was made in a lab to be a Milwaukee Brewer. (laughs) When he got on the mound last night on Thursday in Game 1 against Pittsburgh – Every vision I had between the Tuesday deadline and his appearance on Thursday of him in a Brewer jersey was surpassed. Just magnificent. Majestic. He looks like he was born in a Milwaukee Brewer jersey. He's got the gut. He's got the dad bod. He's got the flowing locks. Almost looks like he got a perm before he hit the mound on Thursday. He's got the Fu Manchu and the 5 o'clock shadow which subsequently says that he is here to party and he's still recovering from the party. I love the message that sends, the Fu Manchu with the 5 o'clock shadow. He just looks like the perfect Brewer, and in his interviews with the beat reporters before Thursday's game where he had a chance to introduce himself to Brewers fans, he was talking about all the great food in Wisconsin, cheese and IPAs. He looks like if you put into a blender, if you put into one of those... In those Halloween movies back in the day where you'd have a witches would have a gigantic brewing pot, a giant soup pot... If you put the ghost of Pete Vukovic in there, the ghost of Doug Jones and Mike Fetters, all those guys with the mustaches and a little overweight, you know what I'm talking about? And you put them all together in a melting pot, out comes this guy. Out comes Andrew Chafin. He just fits so perfectly. And he has one more year of control. He's not making peanuts. He's making $7 million for a middle reliever, which tells you that he's been good in his career. And he's under contract, I believe, for one more year. Next year, there might be an option where you could get out of that. But what they should do is sign him to a lifetime contract. That seems to be the most logical move. This man was born to be in Milwaukee and should be for the duration of his career. And had a scoreless inning in his debut last night. I just can't get over how perfect he is. He does kind of remind me a little bit of we Kenny Powers, too. We had that reference on the B93 text line today. My dad said you ruined baseball. You know what? I can already tell that I don't like you. And I'm probably not going to like you, no matter how many pull-ups or push-ups you do. Just one of the great shows on HBO, he spawned down. I believe it's coming back for a season two. There's four seasons. It got a little weird there the last season. I think, though, it is coming back for at least one more year. Yeah, he's got a little Kenny Powers look to him as well. He joins the roster on Thursday after that trade went down on Tuesday. I guess one thing when you look back at the trade deadline, one thing I am happy about is it went differently than last year where they got nothing and gave up their all-star closer. They did it a little differently. They kept their all-star closer. They got a couple of average bats, and they got a left-handed reliever. They added. They added at the deadline instead of basically selling at the deadline when they were in first place in 2022. That is an improvement, and they didn't give up much. They didn't give up hardly anything. A fringe top 30 prospect to bring in Santana. Depending on what prospectus you were reading, the pitcher they gave up to get Canna was either top 15 or fringe top 15 or fringe top 20. Again, we've talked about the prospects being hit or miss. That's kind of a hit or miss idea. And they also give up. What did they give up to get Chafin? Oh, they just gave up Stress Lucky, who was really good to begin the year. He was pretty solid for the Brewers at the end of last year. He got hurt, was on the IL for a while. He had just come back up. His ERA was a little below or a little above five. He had kind of fallen off. Whether the injuries were the major factor there or not, I guess we'll find out. That's what they give up to get Chafin. And they did swing a trade where Luis Arias was sent out. 
What an odd path that whole trade with San Diego has taken. They made that trade in 2020 to give up Trent Grisham and Zach Davies, was it? And they got back Eric Lauer and Luis Arias. And in that first year, Davies was really good in San Diego. And all the pieces that went to Trent Grisham was a, I think he was an all-star in 2020 or close to it, or a gold glover in right field. That first year, it looked like, God, the Brewers lost that trade. Arias had a bad year. Lauer made two starts. ZRA was over 11. Then in 2021, the whole thing flipped. Grisham had a substandard year offensively. He was taken out of the everyday lineup. Zach Davies was traded away. Eric Lauer was a key part of a stellar rotation in 2021. Luis Arias had 25 home runs and looked like he was going to be the third baseman in the future. Last year, the Urias average dipped a little bit to about 240, but he was still hitting for power and a superb defender. Lauer, again, last year, pretty good. ERA below four and gave you that lefty in the starting rotation. Still felt like the Brewers won that trade. And then this year, it maybe flips back where Lauer has been unplayable for most of the year. He's finally off of the injured list at AAA Nashville now and doing some spot work out of the bullpen. I don't think we're going to see him again. Urias strained his hamstring on opening day this year, came back, didn't look like he was in shape, and now he's in Boston. They get a pretty highly rated pitching prospect for him, though. He almost immediately becomes a top 15 pitching prospect for the Brewers, a guy who's coming back from Tommy John but throws 92-95, has a sharp curveball. All of the scouting reports I've heard of the guy they got back for Urias are very encouraging, just a good young arm to have in the system. That was also a part of the Tuesday deadline, which apparently happened literally with one minute left at 4.59 Central time they executed that Urias deal. That's how the trade deadline goes down. You get a couple of bats that hopefully are ignited by being in a playoff run leaving teams that were not in the run and joining a team that is in the running for a playoff spot, two veteran bats, you get a good relief pitcher, and then you send out Urias and get a pitching prospect back. Didn't give up a lot. Hopefully that you can get a lot of return on the guys you got back. So far it hasn't been ideal, but it's a very small sample size. That led to the series in Washington. We talked on Monday's podcast about how these games against really bad teams are games you've got to capitalize on well they go out on Monday and lose to the last place Nationals with Corbin Burns on the hill you can't go back and change it but you just can't have it you cannot have games like that you can't lose to last place teams at this stage of the year if you're looking to make a move and you definitely can't lose to the Nationals when you've got Corbin Burns on the hill it's never good either way no matter who is pitching for the Brewers it's a bad loss You cannot waste a Corbin Burns start against the last place team and lose that game. Offense didn't do anything on Monday, really. They lost 5-3. Bounce back with a 6-4 win on Tuesday. Peralta was pretty good, and the offense got it going enough. Devin got the save. Then you had the debacle on Wednesday. 2-1 lead in the ninth inning. Devin came on. And you just knew it was going to be trouble. The first batter, five-hold Carlos Santana. We've talked about Carlos Santana's defense. He's an elite first-base defender, has been his entire career. When the first batter of the inning hit a routine ground ball to Santana and it went right through his wickets, you just got that feeling of, uh uh-oh, oh Oh boy, this is not going to be good. Then the next guy, a check swing, an excuse-me swing that he didn't even mean to, Barely makes contact, but did enough where it just dumps into left field, a blue pit, and then you really had the, oh, no. Oh, no. Then the next guy's a walk. That's on Devin. I saw some people coming after Devin on Brewer Twitter. 
I don't know what you want this guy to do. That was a baseball inning. That's one of those innings that you say, well, that's baseball sometimes. You had an error from a really good defensive first baseman. You had a check swing bloop single. Then you walked a guy. That, to me, if you're going to take a shot at Devin for his effort on Wednesday, that's really the one issue he had was putting that walk out there. And then with the bases loaded and nobody out and the infield in, the next guy he faced, the last batter of the game, as it turned out, hit a ground ball directly to Andrew Monasterio, who was in at third. I joke sometimes about being able to make a throw. I think you or I could have made the throw that he had to make home. And it's a force out. All you have to do is get it to Contreras. Whether or not you could turn the double play, if you get it to Contreras quickly enough, could he then throw to first for a double play? Who cares? You just want to get the one guaranteed out. Get the force out, and then you're a double play away from ending the inning and ending the game with a win. It went right to him. He throws wide of Contreras on a short throw off the tip of Contreras' mitt. It gets away. And I stupidly thought, well, that game is tied. It didn't enter my brain until the other guy came around third that they could maybe lose the game on that play. Nationals get aggressive. Why wouldn't you? They send the guy behind him. Contreras tried to throw it to Devin at the plate. I think Devin was a little caught off guard. They were sending that runner too. Throw was late, and the Nationals won in walk-off fashion. One of the worst losses of the year. Brewers have had some bad losses to bad teams. To lose to a bad team in that fashion, at least when they lost to Oakland, when they got swept by Oakland, they were just resounding defeats. It wasn't a loss like that, where you had it, you were three outs away, your elite all-star closer was on the mound, and you give it away with a couple of defensive errors and a walk and a check swing, excuse me, swing single. A gut punch 3-2 loss on Wednesday. They do bounce back, though. On Thursday morning's morning show, I gave the Brewers as simple as it could be, a simple two-step plan to get things turned around. How do we around. go about fixing it specifically? Take it one step at a time. I didn't about a problem. Fix it. That's one. Identify another problem. Fix it. Yep. Repeat as necessary until it's all fixed. And they did that. They took our advice and did just that. Because coming out of Wednesday, the the theme again, which it has been all year, was the offense was bad on Wednesday. You cannot keep walking this razor's edge of two to one games, three to two games, four to three games, and expect in the seventh, eighth, and ninth innings that everybody's going to be perfect and the defense is going to be perfect. Wednesday was a classic example of in baseball, you're going to have an inning like that. An elite closer is going to give up a check swing single and the defense, which has been stout all year, is going to make a couple errors. This is why you cannot be in all these one-run games. You've got to beat some people down. You've got to blow some people out. The Brewers in that game on Wednesday, after Yelly hit the go-ahead RBI double to make it 2-1, to one, had runners on second and third, nobody out, and the middle of the order coming up, and they couldn't tack on a single extra run. That's where you lose the game. You don't lose the game with one of those random baseball innings that every team goes through. Unfortunately, it came against a bad team on the road and in a situation where you're trying to make a run for a division title. All of those circumstances aside, every baseball team deals with innings like we saw in the ninth inning on Wednesday. It's why you can't be in one-run games every damn game. You've got to put more runs on the board, and you have to score, guys, when they're sitting on third with nobody out. All you need is to put it in the air, sacrifice, fly, really make contact anywhere, and you get that third run home. That was the issue on Wednesday, and that's what they have to fix if they want to be a serious contender this year. Well, on Thursday, at least in a one-off, they were able to do that. Man, was that fun. Two touchdowns on the board. How about it? 14 runs, gotten that one nothing hole early, and then with two outs and two on in the bottom of the first inning, Sal Freelich, who loves national TV. He made his debut on national TV. It wasn't until his last at-bat last night on Thursday night that he had recorded an out 
on national TV. He had either gotten a hit, a walk, a home run, something until that last at-bat. He had a huge day, none bigger, though, than that two-RBI double with two outs in the first inning. It put the Brewers up 2-1, to one, and I think that set the tone for the rest of the game. It was just a tremendous game. 14 runs on the board most of the season by far, 16 hits. Everybody got in on the mix. Yelly had a three-hit, two-RBI game. Man, is he hot hitting 291. He's the 20th best OPS in baseball right now. William Contreras, as steady as ever. Two hits and a double. Carlos Santana had a hit. Adamas had a hit. But it was the kids. Sal Freelick, two for three, five driven in, had a double and a home run on Thursday. Andrew Monasterio, even for his defensive deficiency or his defensive laps on Wednesday, Two more hits, including a double. He's hitting 293. Brian Anderson is back, and he got into the game late because it was such a blowout on Thursday. It's going to be tough for Brian Anderson to uproot Monasterio from third base, or they're going to have to find creative ways to keep him in the lineup. Even though he's not much of a power threat, he has hit some doubles, though. Only one home run on the year. We're at a point now with Andrew Monasterio where he has 125 at-bats. That's not a super small sample size anymore. You know, sometimes these guys hit 280, 290 for a while, then you look and they have 40 at-bats or 50 at-bats. He's got a pretty healthy amount of at-bats right now and is hitting 293. And for a team that is searching for any kind of consistently offensively or any kind of contact, I don't know how you keep a guy hitting 293 off the field. They're going to have to find a way to keep him at second or third. Brian Anderson is going to have to battle for at-bats with Monasterio right now. And then the kids at the bottom of the order. Bryce Terang, who made a jersey switch, he was wearing number zero because Urias had worn number two in Milwaukee during his time. Well, they trade Urias. That makes number two available. If you bought a Bryce Terang number zero, I can't imagine there's too many out there, but I'm sure some folks did. If you brought a, bought a Bryce Terang zero, I don't know what to tell you. They do need to institute, maybe they have this, maybe this does exist somewhere, a buyback situation where if a player changes their jersey number within X amount of months or X amount of years, you can go and get the different version for a discount or get it for free, or you have a collector's item now. If Bryce Terang turns out to be something and he's in Milwaukee for six or seven or eight years or more and he becomes a key fixture of the franchise, you might be in five or six years one of the few people walking around AmFam Field with the Bryce Terang zero. That could be a good random jersey. For the random jersey game, that could be a good one. He changed his jersey to two, which has meaning to him. He said that at the end of the game. He's got a tattoo. His dad was a major leaguer, and his dad wore number one. Number one is retired by the Brewers. So he couldn't wear that. Because of that, he decided early in his career in the Milwaukee system to wear number two, and he's got a tattoo of his dad wearing number one and him wearing number two next to him. Well, this is what we're going to see from Bryce Terang wearing number two. Three for five last night, a no-doubt three-run home run, two runs scored. He's been getting better in the last two weeks, though. That average had dipped down to 197 at its lowest point. Since that, 10-ish days ago, he's been making better contact. He adjusted his batting stance, too. He's not nearly a squat anymore. If you watch Bryce Terang, early in the year, his legs or his knees were really bent. He was really squat and wide at the plate. He's much more straight up and down now. He looks a lot more like Christian Yelich does at the plate. The bat is a lot quieter as well in his stance. It's paid off for the course of 10 days. He got the average from 197 up to 221. That's a lot for an average to move. He has a pretty substantial amount of at-bats at this point. That's a pretty big chunk for it to move at this stage of the year. Finally got his OPS over 600, which is still (laughs) dreadful, but at least it's not in the 590s anymore. I think it's at 622. He's been playing better, and Weimer has too. You do wonder if these kids now with 300-ish at-bats, about half a season's worth, if they are starting to get calmer, more poise, and adapt to the major league level, 
and are becoming more of what we think we're going to see. I don't know that Bryce Terang is ever going to be a guy that's going to hit 300 or 275 even, but with his defense, if he can hit you 245, 250, keep it somewhere in there, make himself usable in the lineup, he could have a long career. Joey Weimer, we've seen the power. He's hit 13 home runs. He's got 17 doubles, I think. His OPS is only a little under 700. He's got an eight-game hitting streak now. He was two for three last night with a run driven in and drew two walks as well on base basically all night. If these kids are starting to become more consistent factors offensively in the eight and nine hole, that does change the complexion not only of the lineup but of the season if they can keep doing that. We've seen a really good stretch of baseball now, about 10 to 12 days worth from Tereng and Weimer, and they're already giving you great defense. Adrian Hauser, solid six innings, one run ball, eight up some innings, got in that one nothing hole, but got out of it beyond that. He is not good in that first inning. After that, though, he seems to settle in like a lot of sinker ball pitchers do. Had five strikeouts. J.C. Mejia had two scoreless with four strikeouts. And then we saw our boy Chafin out there. <laughs> And he got it done at a three-up, three-down inning in his debut in a 14-to-1 game with one strikeout. He'll be used more in high-leverage innings, but given that he hadn't pitched in three or four days and it was one of those situations where there was no pressure in a 14-to-1 game, it was a good spot to get Chafin in for his debut. Brewers get the win. They are 59-51 and with that win. The Reds lose. They lose three out of four in Chicago. Boy, the Cubs are coming, aren't they? You've kind of had your eye on them because the run differential, which a lot of baseball folks look to almost more than record. I mean, I don't know how you look at it more than record. Your record's your record. (laughs) The record, to me, is the most important part. I don't mind adapting or adjusting to some of these new metrics and new stats. OPS is something I would have rolled my eyes at two years ago, but it's growing on me. It makes a lot of sense as a way to measure how good an offensive player is outside of just average. I'm learning to accept some of these new things. I look at run differential. I do think it tells you a story. Your record is your record, though. That's the most important thing is the record. The record is the record. The Cubs, though, have been the only team in the NL Central for a long time, even when they were well below 500. They were the only team with a positive run differential between runs scored and runs allowed. The baseball folks that subscribe to that being a very good metric for how good a team actually is would say, We saw this coming. We saw this run the Cubs are on right now coming because they have had that positive run differential the entire year. They've just gotten snake bit a little bit or a bad game here or there. That they use as an indicator of, okay, this team's 500, but they're plus 65 or plus 70 run differential. At some point, they'll get it going, and they have gotten it going. They're above 500 now. Take three of four from the Reds. That does put the Brewers back in first place by half a game. Cubs, though, are 56 and 53, only two worse in the loss column and only two and a half back. It's going to be a race, everybody. Get your Xanax, get your Tums, get whatever you need to get ready for the final two months of the season or a little less than two months of the season. It looks like now a three-horse race. Brewers, we know, don't play the Reds anymore. They went 10-3 and against Cincinnati. Six games remain, though, against the Cubs. Let me just take a look at the schedule here. I'm pretty sure one of them is one of the last series of the year. They have the remainder of this Pittsburgh series, then Colorado, then at Chicago. Really tough after you're done with the White Sox. They are in L.A. for three and then in Texas for three. Rangers right now leading the AL West. You're in Chicago the last week of August. And then, yeah, Chicago's at AmFam Field. Oh, you just know. (laughs) Now that I read that, I didn't know that. It's the last series of the year. At AmFam Field, September 29th, 30th, and October 1st. You just know there's going to be a lot on the line in that series, don't you? Whether it's the division, whether it's a wild card, 
and it's going to be raucous. That's going to be 45000 It's going to be 50-50 split. I'm going to start mentally preparing myself for that now. <laughs> I didn't realize it was the last series of the year. Brewers end on a six-game homestand with the Cardinals, who seem to be firmly out of it. Three against St. Louis and then three against Chicago to end the year. Yeah, that's Sunday, October 1st. Could be a massive game. Okay, well, didn't realize that. Back at it tonight, Brewers have Colin Ray on the hill. They do get Woodruff back this weekend. That's another part of the conversation for the Brewers. Everything went well on Tuesday. No after effects of his final rehab start in Nashville on Tuesday. It's going to be Corbin Burns on Saturday and Brandon Woodruff on Sunday making his return. My guess is, like Wade Miley, he's going to be on a 70-ish pitch count, but we have reached the spot now where we're finally going to see Brandon Woodruff's third start of the year. We thought it might come late June. Now we're early August, better late than never. Ray tonight at 7:10. Burns tomorrow, Pittsburgh TBD, and then Woodruff will be on the mound on Sunday afternoon. And then another last-place team in right away on Monday before you hit the road for that nine-game trip. I'm taking some time off next week. We will have a podcast on Monday. We will not on Friday. I'll remind you that at the end of this. I am going to be in Chicago. My wife and I are going down there for a couple of days and going to some of those Brewer White Sox games next weekend at whatever it's called. I don't even know. It's not U.S. Cellular anymore. Guaranteed right field. We'll be down there for two of those Friday, Saturday, next weekend. That's what it looks like. Hopefully you can take care of business or continue to against the Pirates this weekend and the Rockies the early part of next week. There was a lot of Brewer stuff in there. Real quick, the Luke Fickle era. We continue to roll win after win after win. Four and five star recruit after four and five star recruit. And now at long last, you are able to buy beer at Camp Randall or at the Cole Center. College teams started slowly to incorporate this. I'll never forget when the NCAA tournament was at the Bradley Center. The Bradley Center had the four every four years contract for the NCAA tournament. And now that has transferred over to Pfizer Forum. The Pfizer Forum just had it a few years ago. And I got tickets for my now wife. Then we were dating back in 2008 or 2009, whenever it was. We got the full day, whatever day it was, Thursday or Friday, the full day. So there's four games on that site in the opening rounds, a morning game, a mid-morning game, then a break, then an afternoon game, then an evening game. We had the full day. And I was looking forward to sitting there, betting on those games, getting my bracket out, drinking beer and eating food and doing the whole thing at the Bradley Center. We got inside, and I went to the concession stand, and I got myself whatever, a pretzel and a hot dog, and I saw covers over the beer handles. And I thought, huh, that's weird. And then I went to another place. I'll just go to another stand. Covers there, too. And there's no roving beer vendors. And then I had to talk to someone. I don't even think I had. We're talking about a time period where you couldn't even really fire up your phone to find answers there. Eventually, somebody did tell me, yeah, you cannot buy beer at NCAA tournament sanctioned events or NCAA sanctioned events. And I thought, what? (laughs) I'm going to be here all day and I can't have a beer? I can't pay. I want to pay you $10 for a beer or whatever it was then. $8. I would like to pay you $8 for one 16-ounce Pilsner, please. I'd like one. That's when I learned about that. Slowly, some college teams have incorporated it. And now the Badgers are one of those teams. It just makes sense. I mean, drinking beer and tailgating, I'm not sure what they thought they were preventing. I guess you figure if you are the venue, you know the college kids, whether they're legal or not, are going to be pre-gaming and post-gaming. I'm guessing the thinking was give them a break when they're at the game. They get a two- or three-hour break from whatever and sober up and take a nap, get some sunburn out there. And then they can do whatever after the game and obviously before the game. I think that's the thinking there originally. 
Now, though, you can go and get your stone cold on. Since I ate all that food, I drank a beer. Do it again. I drank another beer. Three beers. Four beers. Oh, no. Five beers. Oh, no. Six beers. Seven beers. Eight beers. Nine beers. And a Bloody Mary. Sure, the kick lawler's the best. Oh, no. (laughs) Only got to five. Oh, no. Now we can do that. Not that encouraging, sloppy behavior, obviously. Officially, the Strange Brew Podcast is not on board with that. It will be nice, though, to be able to have a cold one at a Badger game. Me and my buddies are going. I haven't been to a Badger game in a long time. We're going to the Iowa game, I believe, on October 14th. It'll be nice to be able to pregame and then have a beer or two at the actual game. The Luke Fickle era, though. Everything's coming up, Millhouse. Everything's coming up, Badger fans. We haven't seen an actual game yet. I know they're in their camp now, too. The Packers have their camp going on. Badgers have their camp at UW-Platteville. That's all underway. But that... Add that to the list of all the recruits and all the energy and all the enthusiasm. So far, so good. We'll see how it actually plays out in the field on the field in less than a month. Less than a month, right? When Buffalo plays at Camp Randall and people are having beer at Camp Randall. That addition, though, even though Fickle had nothing to do with it, I'm sure. That addition of the Fickle era is another welcome sight for the Badgers. And then finally, Packers, eh, you know, not a lot going on. Practices, you're getting the really detailed reports from training camp. We had our first NFL game last night, the Hall of Fame game, Jets and Browns. Aaron Rodgers did not play. They did show him in the beginning of the game. I forgot Randall Cobb went there. That was always a thing in Green Bay when the National Anthem was going on. Those two would stand arm in arm next to each other. Seeing that last night in the pregame and then having them both wear Jets jerseys was a little jarring. Not totally, but it was a little like you date someone and then you break up and you know that it's mutually beneficial. It's good for both of you to go your separate ways. This was needed. Still, when you see him out with somebody else or wearing the different colors, it does kind of get you a little bit. He didn't play last night. I don't think he's going to play in the preseason. I thought maybe given in a new system with new pieces, but why would you risk him if you're the Jets? First episode of Hard Knocks is coming this week. But we had NFL football on last night. We are one week away from the Packers and the Bengals opening the preseason. Family night is this Saturday. I've never been. I've heard it's a really fun time. Do you even have to pay for tickets? Maybe a handful of bucks, a couple of bucks, a couple of saw bucks? I'm not sure how much it costs to get in. That is this weekend, though. The fireworks show is worth it, and it's just a really fun part of the locally owned, the publicly owned team, Packer Family Night this Saturday. And then, yeah, one week from today, preseason game number one with Jordan Love at Cincinnati seven days out. That'll do it for us here this morning. Have a great weekend. Like I said, we'll have a Monday podcast, then I'm gone for a couple of days. We will not have a Friday podcast next week. It's our first podcast off in a long time. You know what I do want to get done before the opening game against the Bears? I want to do a countdown. I've seen so many nostalgic Bear Packer highlight packages on Twitter lately from the Favre era, from the early Rodgers era, the mid-Rodgers era. I think I want to do a countdown. So the first game is when? September 10th? So that would mean the Friday, Monday, the 21, 2, 3, 4, 5. So two weeks from today, on the 18th, I want to spend a part of every podcast from that one until opening day counting down my personal favorite top five Packer Bear games heading into Packer Bear weekend on opening weekend. And we'll find some highlights and play a couple highlights or some pregame intros or things like that. I've been seeing those pop up on Twitter, and I just really love them. I love the nostalgia of it, especially the 90s 
pre- the promo packages before the games with Favre and all that crew. We'll do that, I think, starting on the 18th. Two weeks from today, we'll spend one moment of every podcast or one segment all the way up until opening weekend counting down our favorite top five Packer-Bear matchups. Have a good weekend. We'll chat with you Monday.